Hello and welcome to Deep Dive from the Japan Times. I'm Oscar Boyd and I'm recording this outside Tokyo's new Olympic Stadium, which is currently silent and empty with just a few police officers patrolling the grounds. There's been a lot of controversy about the design and cost of this stadium, but now that it's built, I actually think it's a really beautiful building. It was designed by Kengo Kuma and is covered in plants that are now green with the warm spring weather. In just a few months, on July 23rd, this stadium is expected to be at least half full with fans, here to watch the opening ceremony of the postponed Tokyo Olympics. Now to me, as much as I'd like to see the game succeed, hosting the Olympics this summer seems very risky. The pandemic's nowhere near over, vaccinations in Japan are slow, there was the recent crisis in the leadership over Mori's sexist remarks. It's very easy to ask, why does the government seem so keen to go ahead with the games? And I think a lot of people are wondering about this. Polls show that the Japanese public is overwhelmingly not on board with the Olympics. Yet things are going full steam ahead, with test events taking place, athletes arriving in Japan, and the torch relay beginning just last week. In some ways, the games seem unstoppable. Joining me this week is the New York Times Tokyo Bureau Chief Matoka Rich, here to discuss why the government seems so intent on holding the Olympic Games this summer, and talk about the risks associated with them going ahead as planned. Matoko Rich, welcome back to Deep Dive. Thank you very much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. So the first question I'd like to put to you is, we've seen other large-scale sporting events going ahead over the past few months. There was the Australian Open in January, the US had the Super Bowl in February, and the Formula One racing season has just started and I believe is planning to visit something like 20 countries this season. So how much bigger a challenge is it to host the Olympics? So you talked about the Formula One visiting 20 countries, so there's some analogous um, sense there, but the Olympics is the world's largest sporting event and it involves thousands of athletes coming from over 200 countries and participating in lots of different sports. And so even imagining how you would set standardized rules for protecting people from the pandemic, it's kind of mind-boggling just to think about how to set the rules. It's not one event where you can say, okay, well, everybody's going to be basically in this kind of situation or context, so you make Mm. the rules tailored to that context. I mean, we, we've got people who are going to be surfing. We've got people playing baseball. We've got people doing beach volleyball, running on a track, swimming in a pool, uh, pole vaulting, gymnastics. So it's just a fiendishly complex event. It's, so it's not one sporting event. It's multiple sporting events all taking place over this period of two and a half, three weeks. Then on top of that, the issues that you mentioned, which are that the Japanese public is a pretty opposed to holding the Olympics this summer. Mm. Something polls show somewhere between, depending on who's doing the polling, 65 to 80% of the public either want it postponed again or canceled altogether. For, for, for good reason, right? That the Japanese have been slow to roll out the vaccines. And so a lot of the public will not themselves be vaccinated when a country that's effectively been closed for months is suddenly going to be opening them up to all these folks who are going to come in. And my understanding is that what's really odd is that partly because they're athletes and they're going to need to train and there are all kinds of issues that they're going to need to deal with before they participate in their competitions, they're not going to be asked to quarantine. So I think it's just sort of really hard for people to get their head around, like, 
in, in just on the public health basis, how is this going to be possible to manage? You're going to have a largely unvaccinated public. And then while there may be, you know, mostly um, vaccinated Olympic delegations coming from the big countries like the United States or China, there'll be plenty of folks that are coming from countries where they don't yet have vaccines widely available themselves. So it's not clear whether the Olympic athletes and their surrounding delegations will themselves be vaccinated when they come in. So it's a, it's a fairly um, complicated and worrisome mix. And you mentioned vaccines there as one measure that could potentially help make the game safer. But let's go into that in a little bit more detail. What measures have been announced and will be put in place to try and prevent the spread of COVID-19 at these Olympic Games? So both the Tokyo Organizing Committee and the International Organizing Committee have explicitly stated that vaccination is not a requirement of attending the Olympics. Although, you know, one very specific measure that they've taken is that they've banned international spectators. So there won't, there will only be the athletes. I think the athletes will be allowed to bring a very tiny um, family contingent and then the coaches, the organizing committee um, officials, referees, what have you, and then media are going to be allowed in. So that's still thousands and thousands of people, but it does, it cuts out the, the international travel of spectators. So that's one measure. The other thing that they've said is that although they're not requiring vaccination, that they are encouraging all uh, national organizing or Olympic committees to do their best to get their own Olympic athletes vaccinated. And there has been a lot of discussion about, although elite athletes aren't necessarily the top category when you're thinking about essential workers and older citizens and people with underlying conditions. In an Olympic year, there are some organizing committees that have worked out agreements with their governments to make sure that their athletes at least will be vaccinated if they're coming to the Olympics. China also did negotiate an agreement with the IOC where they are offering their vaccine to any Olympic athlete who wants it. Japan, for example, has already stated very explicitly that, no, thank you, we will not be um, taking the, the Chinese-made um, vaccines for our athletes, but it has they haven't announced whether they're going to do something else for Japanese athletes. Um, and we don't know what uh, of these 200 other countries that will be sending Olympic athletes, whether they will have vaccinated or whether they will accept the Chinese offer or what kind of arrangements they will have made. And if vaccines aren't the answer and athletes won't have to self-isolate for two weeks so that they can keep on training throughout this period, what measures are being put in place? Will there be some kind of system that keeps athletes separated from the general public? Yes, they're going to be asked to not take public transit, to stick within the Olympic bubble and the Olympic village. Although, again, there is this um, program for some athletes to uh, customize to the, the time difference, get over jet lag and do some training in local communities. There are, like, I believe, some 500 communities, some of which are in the Tokyo area, but some are which are further out, that have volunteered to host Olympic athletes for several days upon arrival in Japan so that they can recover from jet lag and, and train. And so one wonders if they're not vaccinated, and of course the locals will unlikely be vaccinated, what kind of precautions will be put in place to make sure that that's not a route of infection. So that's kind of a concern. But generally speaking, I mean, most of the measures are as they have been in Japan generally, right? That there has not ever been a, a strict mandatory lockdown in Japan. It's all been voluntary measures. The Japanese public has, by and large, complied with those voluntary measures in a way that is not necessarily the case in other countries where they have to have mandates in order to get people to cooperate. But 
you know, there are questions being raised about when you're bringing people in from, you know, myriad different countries and cultures and expectations, whether or not just having these voluntary measures will be sufficient to protect both the athletes, the the Olympic contingents and the public. Mm -hmm. And of course, under normal circumstances, the Games are a highly social event with athletes wanting to mix with each other and celebrate their performances, etc., after their competitions are finished. Right. I mean, they're nonprofit groups that dis- distribute condoms in the Olympic Village. I mean, that's an acknowledgement of just how social... I mean, these are people at the peak of their prime. They're, you know, um, they're young. They're After they finish their event, they're probably really, you know, pumped up and excited. They're in a foreign country. Um, so all kinds of partying and socializing happens. And the idea that just by voluntarily asking people not to do so, there are a lot of concerns about whether that will be sufficient. How long will athletes be able to stay once they finish their competitions? Will they be asked to leave Japan pretty quickly once they're done? Yes, I think that's one of the measures that has been implemented is that asking people not to come um, more than I believe it is five days before their competition and then to leave um, shortly after. I can't um, exactly remember the, the exact date, but it's definitely not. They're, they're asking everyone not to stay for the full event. I'm not quite sure what that'll mean then for the opening and the closing ceremonies, which typically tend to be events that uh, as many athletes as possible are invited to participate. So obviously there is going to be a different organization. They've already announced that they're going to downscale both of those, those events so as not to uh, create the conditions of overcrowding and so on and so forth. What do we know of the testing regime for Olympic athletes? I remember that the NBA also had a similar bubble type situation to allow it to continue, right. although it was much stricter sounding than the Olympic one. And there they got tested every morning or maybe every afternoon just to keep track of any affections that might right. occur. Will there be a similar setup in the Olympic bubble? That has been discussed. I don't think it's been officially decided, but it's definitely been discussed. I mean, again, with Japan, the concern, I think one of the reasons why the public is a little wary and skeptical about this is that Japan has been a very low testing country throughout the pandemic, that the officials, the health ministries and the local health um, wards are not testing widely. There's a pretty high threshold or bar to even be eligible for getting testing in the public facilities. So the notion that there's something going to ramp testing up dramatically in um, just for the Olympics, I think a lot of people are a little bit doubtful about that. But there has been discussion about how they should test, you know, every other day or every day, at the uh, particularly in the athlete's village. Mm-hmm. I want to flip the question the other way somewhat and ask, Is there actually any guarantee that Japan will be safe to even host the Olympics? Because we've just come out of a state of emergency and it already looks like cases are starting to rise again. We know that the Japanese public won't be anywhere near fully vaccinated by the opening ceremonies. So could it be the case that coming to Japan actually poses a danger for the athletes? Well, I I think there are risks for both contingents, right? I don't think any, you know, nobody's immune and and it's, it's a lot of it depends on who's vaccinated and who's not. So if the athletes are all vaccinated, clearly they will be um, uh, much lower risk than the general public, which will largely, as far as we know, based on the schedule that has been announced in Japan, not be vaccinated. Japan currently has not announced plans to start vaccinating those over 65 until mid-April. 
the vaccine minister, Konotaro, did say earlier this week, I believe, that there is this um, acceleration that's likely to happen in May. But he's not said that um, the, the public will be widely vaccinated by the time of the Olympics. In fact, some of the dates that have been thrown out there are like February 2022. Mm. So that means that people will be vaccinated in time for the Beijing Olympics to begin, not the Tokyo Olympics. So um, I think the risk for the public in Japan is such that, you know, your point about the socialization and people going out and about, and just when you're talking about the scale of it, is this is a country that's, you know, shut its borders down. Non-residents have not been allowed to come in. And so to suddenly open the gates, I think it could be logistically quite difficult. So what do doctors and other health experts think of the Olympics going forward under these conditions? Is there a consensus amongst medical professionals about whether these Olympics should go ahead or not? Well, it's a good question whether there's a consensus. I don't know if there's a consensus, but I've talked to a few that said, you know, the best thing to do would be to cancel it for all the reasons mentioned above. Japan has not managed the pandemic in the way that countries like Taiwan, Australia or New Zealand or um, the territory of Hong Kong have, where they have really managed uh, to keep cases to very, very low levels through actual management. The way that Japan has tried to kind of navigate this balance, which is understandable. It's a large country, 127 million people. It's a large economy. Um, There are huge economic costs to throttling um, uh, activity. So Japan has really had an approach that is balancing both the economy and public health throughout the pandemic. But that's when they have only had to manage their own citizens and residents who are used to kind of cultural norms here. They're going to be inviting tens of thousands of people from outside where there might be different expectations or different ways that they have managed, come from countries that have managed the pandemic totally differently. And so to expect people from all these places to suddenly adapt, Mm. you know, instantly upon the moment they step off the plane here is, is a lot to ask. I think you've just outlined very clearly the risks with going forward with these games. So now I'd like to ask about some of the reasons why the games are going ahead and why the government seems so determined to make them happen. And in a recent article, you wrote, in the telling of the Olympic organisers, staging the games this summer is something close to a moral imperative. So let's go into that. Why do you think that the government feels this moral imperative to go ahead with the games this summer? Well, whether or not they feel it or believe it, I don't know. I'm not in their heads. I can only go based on the answers to questions I have asked. And, you know, I posed a very similar question at a press conference where Hashimoto Seiko, the president of the Olympic Committee, was, you know, given all of these risks, given um, that the public is opposed to it, why exactly do you want to do this? And why do you actually are, why are you confident that you can pull it off safely since they say they're number one priority is safety. And she said, you know, we feel this responsibility to provide this kind of light to the to the world as a symbol of having overcome the coronavirus pandemic. But we have, you know, the world simply has not recovered. You can't just sort of superimpose a symbol on top of a reality that doesn't exist. So most observers say that that seems like an odd thing to say. I mean, it would have been one thing to have said it when that was the underlying truth, to then have this kind of celebratory event might have made sense. But to sort of superimpose the event on a different reality is odd. But to be frank, it's something that Japan has done from the moment it 
um, put in a bid to host the Olympics for 2020 originally. They um, put in their bid in late 2013 and won in 2014, I believe, and it was cast as the recovery of the Olympics. And at that point, they meant recovery from the uh, terrible 311 tsunami, earthquake, and nuclear disaster. And they very specifically focused on recovery for Fukushima. The torch relay that started last week started at J Village in Fukushima. They've talked about it as the Recovery Olympics. And in reporting this story, I talked to people in Fukushima who said, you know, we don't really buy into this narrative that it's the Recovery Olympics because all you have to do is look on the ground. It's been 10 years since the, the tragedy. And they're not yet recovered. There's all this nuclear waste that has yet to be removed from the plants where the meltdowns took place. There's all this contaminated soil that is packed up in bags that's spread out over you know fields all across the prefecture. There are you know thousand tanks on the site of Fukushima Daiichi nuclear plant that are filled with contaminated water that the government has yet to make a firm decision what to do about it. So there is no way that you can just look at the facts on the ground and say, oh, Fukushima has recovered. So mm. to say that the Olympics are the recovery Olympics kind of goes against reality. And it's potentially quite the opposite in that I think there's been complaints for multiple years that the Olympics has actually extracted and diverted resources away from those areas that need to recover. Absolutely. Absolutely. Not just resources, but attention. I mean, the interesting thing and sad thing for Fukushima is that even going back to 1964, that a lot of the workers who came to Tokyo to help build the Olympic Stadium were from um, Tohoku. And they, you know, blood, sweat and tears to help build that stadium. And then, um, you know, interestingly, I wrote a profile of Yumiri, who's the author of Tokyo Wino Station, which actually won the National Book Award for Translated Literature. And her whole novel is about Fukushima. And, and the main character is a homeless person living in Wino Park, who had previously been from Fukushima and had come to Tokyo to help build the stadium. And that was based on her research. So it's sort of a, a, a sad irony that, you know, the two Olympics held in Japan have in some ways, you know, exploited Fukushima, um, you know, the first time for actual workers and the second time as a kind of symbol. And so I think a lot of people are dismayed about that. But in terms of the government narrative, that's the narrative that they set out to do. And then, you know, when you talk to people who study Japanese culture and politics, they will say that often once a narrative is set, the kind of bureaucratic inertia takes that forward and there's no stopping it. Mm, so, so I want to jump in there and ask exactly that. How much do you think it is a question of inertia that there is just this feeling or agreement within the government the Olympics has become this unstoppable behemoth that because it's been in motion for such a long time, that for better or worse, it just has to go ahead. And for that reason, they can't accept cancelling it. I think there is a lot of that, to be sure. That, that you know, Mori-san, you know, Yoshino Mori, when he was the president of the Olympic Committee, part of the reason he was selected is he's former prime minister, but he has a lot of connections in government and business community. And so the Tokyo Organizing Committee raised a record amount, so, you know, over $6 billion from uh, sponsors. Um, and then, of course, the budget for the Olympics is now a record high of over $15 billion, and it's gone up like $3 billion in the last year alone. About a little less than a billion of that is so-called COVID um, infection um, protection measures, although they haven't been particularly specific about what those are. 
Um, so I think there's a lot of national pride involved in, you know, we are going to throw this, you know, event. Uh, we had the 1964 Olympics was kind of the beginning of Tokyo's rise or Japan's rise from the ashes of the post-war period. Um, 2020 was supposed to be kind of a capstone event showing the recovery of the Fukushima area. And it's now, there's a worry. I mean, the, the other symbol of 2020 is it was peak um, Tokyo population. And so... Um, and the pandemic has exacerbated, the birth rate has dropped again. I mean, there are just all kinds of ways in which this could be, sadly, the complete opposite, as you say, of what was intended by the organizers. But to be sure, I think you're right. There is this kind of, we've put, you know, in for a penny, in for a pack, you know, we really are in this. We have done so much. And a lot of the rhetoric has been, you know, even when Modi was having a hard time resigning, the rhetoric then was, well, he's been doing this for seven years. We can't let him resign. He's done all this work. So there's that same kind of um, sensibility about the Olympics itself. With that as the backdrop to these Olympics, how important do you think it is that Beijing is set to host the next Olympic event, the Winter Olympics in 2022? If Japan is worried that this year is almost going to be the beginning of the end and its nearest neighbour seems to be accelerating away from it and potentially going to steal its limelight by hosting its own Olympics, how does that play into the government's determination to carry out the Games this summer? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, certainly I did talk to someone for the story who is one of the, um, I think he's like a second tier sponsor, they uh, airweave. Um, but he did say, you know, we can't lose to China. That if we don't hold the Olympics, we can't be the first pandemic, post-pandemic Olympics, it'll be Beijing. And we just can't have that. Mm. And we know that the rise of China is a deep concern for the Japanese government. So that is possibly part of it. I, mean, I, I don't want to exaggerate that to the extent I think there are a lot of other factors. And the other thing, this is not just a Japan story. It is as much a story about the International Olympic Committee as it is about Japan. And I think that in some cases, um, Japan provides cover, as all um, host nations always have to do for the IOC. Because behind the scenes, they have a huge incentive to want this event to go on, which is that they get most of their revenues from the broadcasting rights. And by that, we are talking about NBC, because that's by, you know, the United States, the rights to broadcast the Olympics in the United States is by by are the largest component of the IOC's budget. So if the Olympics are canceled, of course they have insurance coverage, so both NBC and the IOC will be able to recover, you know, they won't it's unlikely that they would make substantial financial losses. But canceling the Olympics for the IOC at a time when a lot of countries have started to look, or cities, I should say, have started to look at the Olympics and kind of the cost to the society, the cost to the taxpayers financially, but also just in kind of infrastructure damage, potential environmental damage, as you say, diverted resources from other priorities. And they're just saying, no, we don't want it. So if they, if this Olympic, if the Tokyo Olympics doesn't go ahead, I'm sure the IOC itself is also worried about, you know, what that does to the Olympic brand. Mm -hmm. And if Japan does go forward with the Olympics, is there any chance that they will manage to recoup some of the money that they've poured into it? The $15.4 billion or so that they spent trying to host these Olympics and rescheduling them. They've already said that international spectators won't be able to attend. So I've got to imagine that that minimizes a lot of 
the potential economic benefits of hosting the games this summer. Right. So, I mean, the vast majority of spectators of any Olympics actually come are, are local. Um, so I don't want to, again, over-exaggerate. It, it, it is a large amount of money, but I think it's something like $880 million for, for tickets, international ticket sales. So when you look at that in the context of the $15.4 billion, it's not necessarily the largest chunk that they're losing. But of course, it is a chunk that they can't um, recoup some of the cost. And then on top of that, there would have been hotel and other tourism revenue. And then there's always this sense that um, Olympic host city gets this kind of uh, halo effect from being designated as a host city. So some of that Japan has already benefited from, that the tourism, that you know, the large expansion in international tourism that occurred in Japan before the pandemic shut everything down was perhaps partly because the, there had been a tension, international tension on Tokyo because it had been selected as a host city. So in some ways, Japan has already had some of that benefit. But you're right, that they're not going to be able to recruit it in the, in the, the moment or the, the weeks in, uh, of both the Olympics and the Paralympics. So that's a loss. Um, and then, uh, the, you know, like I said, the broadcasting rights all go to the International Olympic Committee, not the local host country. So that is kind of a wash. Um, one point to, to, to mention is that as eye-popping as that $15.4 billion budget is, I was talking to economists and he pointed out that back in 1964, the spending on the Tokyo Olympics actually comprised about 3.1% of then Japan's then GDP. And of course, that was partly because GDP was much smaller, but also because they did a lot of huge infrastructure projects like the Shinkansen was basically inaugurated for the 64 Olympics. And there were two, I think, new subway lines that were put in Tokyo because of that. There isn't as much of that happening this time around. It's not like we're getting, you know, new, different high-speed rail or anything like that. But that eye-popping $15.4 billion is now closer to like 06 to 0.8% of Japan's GDP. So in terms of like, is this going to crash the economy? No, I don't think that is. And, 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 you know, the pandemic has been far worse. Everybody's been feeling that internationally in Japan as well. So that's been a far worse effect than the potential loss of the Olympics. Do you see any realistic scenario in which going ahead with hosting these Olympics is actually a win for Japan at this point? Because most of what we've talked about is the negative side of hosting these games, the COVID risk and the financial costs. Could this still turn out to be a good thing for Japan? I mean, it could certainly turn out to be a decent neutral thing, right? I mean, you mentioned at the beginning um, that there have been a number of international sporting events that have been held and they've been fine. And so if that happens, they can sort of... You know, the organizers and the government can certainly and will more than likely spin it as, you know, look at this wonderful event that we pulled off. Um, we didn't, it didn't turn into a super spreader event. And that <laughs> something not turning into a super spreader event will be promoted as the greatest success ever. But it's hard to imagine that it will be considered a huge, wonderful boon to the country um, because the public is not supportive. 
there won't be international spectators, which is part of the kind of fun and energy. Well, that was one of the best things about Japan hosting the Rugby World Cup in 2019, having that energy of those international fans turning up to enjoy the competition. Yeah, just having that international fans here and the energy and the excitement of that is not going to be here. And even for the Japanese spectators, you know, I haven't talked to people since the decision was made to um, exclude international spectators. So that may make local spectators feel better. I mean, I've attended sporting events here in Japan and people are very, very mm. willing to follow the rules. And if they're fans, they're so grateful to be able to see live sporting events that they seem fine about it. So it, it, it's impossible to, to predict and it's not really my job to do so. And so I don't, and I wouldn't want to just say that mm. obviously it's going to be disaster. Um, certainly a lot of other people whose job it is to make those kinds of predictions are saying that, but the, the there is always a possibility. You know, it's not going to be the world's most successful Olympics. It can't be, right? It's the middle of a pandemic. There won't be international spectators. It'll be, it'll be one of the asterisk Olympics, right? We've had a few of those. And finally, is there a future in which you think the Olympics might still be cancelled or postponed further? I mentioned the idea of a fourth wave or fifth wave potentially destabilizing things going forward. Mm. And you can imagine if there's a cancellation, it will once again be quite sudden. That mm. was the way it happened with the postponement last year. One day everything was going to plan and then the next day everything had just been called to a complete halt. Right. So do you think there's a chance it might still be called off or do you think it's a given that they will happen with only four months to go now? Yeah, it's not necessarily a done deal. Uh, I would be a very stupid journalist if I said that, um, given your very um, observant point about what happened last year when everything was a go, a go, a go until we were invited to a press conference where we finally assumed that we were going to hear that things were postponed because in the in the Japanese way, things are leaked, what, four hours beforehand or maybe the day beforehand that, you know, sources close to tell uh, that something is going to happen. So we all know to prepare to be at the right press conference and be ready to go. But, you know, up until that moment, I mean, it even happened when uh, Abe resigned as prime minister, right, that, you know, Suga, his chief cabinet minister and successor was saying, on the morning that he announced his resignation that, you know, I fully expect and Abe son fully expects to stay in office indefinitely. Um, and then in the afternoon, you know, we get called for a press conference and he resigns. So that's how things happen here. So I would never, ever say it's a done deal. It's absolutely happening. I mean, it does feel, um, and as I've reported, that it feels and all that we've been discussing for the last uh, half an hour, 45 minutes, is that it feels like a runaway train. But we know um, you know, this is a country that knows how to step on the brakes if they need to, and so if, if they could do it. And your point about the fourth wave is very valid. There are definitely lots of epidemiologists that have been coming out in public in Japanese media saying, pretty frankly, like, we're very concerned. And already, if you just look at the numbers, they've gone not going down, they're going up. So it does feel like it's irrevocable um, or, in, you know, definitely going to be some kind of fourth wave it's just a question of how severe Matoko thank you very much for your time thank you so much for having me again Oscar that was Matoko Rich the New York Times Tokyo Bureau Chief and that's it for this episode and this podcast for the next three months as I said at the end of last episode, I'll be heading to language school for the next three months and Deep Dive will be taking a hiatus in the meantime the show will be back in the summer, by which point we should actually know if the Olympics are going to happen or not. 
If you like this episode, please write us a review or give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. We love getting feedback on the show and hearing about what you think of each episode. And if you're not already, make sure you subscribe to Deep Dive so that you'll be notified when the show returns in summer. Most importantly, though, stay happy, healthy and hopefully COVID-free. Until next time, as always, Podscale Summer. Summer.